right. Good morning. Welcome out to the Springs. How's everyone doing? Great. Getting ready for the water slide action, the cookout. I'm excited for that. Uh, Kevin, you can't go down the water slide, okay? All right. Uh, If this is your first time here, welcome out. My name's Alberto Lopez. Uh, I serve here alongside our amazing college ministry under the leadership of Tessa, alongside Jessica Betts and my wonderful wife, Morgan. So I'm so excited to be here. I'm so pumped that it's Campus Sunday because I love you guys. I love students. That's why I I do what I do, and I'm happy to see you guys. You're probably not as excited because school starts tomorrow, and uh, I I know the feeling. So uh, it's going to be okay. So I am eager to jump into the Word of God. So we're just going to get straight into it. So if you have your Bible... If not, you can look at the screen or or Google this scripture, but will you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? And today we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. It says this, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, God. That you would till our hearts to be good soil, Father. That your word would take root. And that we would experience a growth in godliness and deeper relationship with you, Father. Where we'd be moved to deeper worship God and loving you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So with the remaining time we have together, I want to propose this idea to you, that our experiences, whether it is work, your hobbies, or home life, marriage, or relationship, is not simply just an experience of those things. Uh, Your marriage isn't just a marriage. Your job isn't just a job. Your major or schooling isn't just a major or career choice. No, all these things, whether you realize it or not, is a worship experience. And since it's Campus Sunday, it's Back to School Sunday, I want to zone in on this idea that your college experience is actually a worship experience. And maybe you find yourself in this room and you're not a student. That's okay. I want to encourage you to lean in and stay with me. Because I believe the word of God transcends titles, settings, and life circumstances. And I believe this word directly applies to your life. So if you're not a student, maybe you're single, married, or married with children, I want to show you from this text how you have a major part to play in the lives of the younger generation and their worship towards God. Now, as it relates to a worship experience, uh, I've noticed that people will worship whatever they're passionate about. Now, some of you might be thinking, I, I don't know, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. Well, let's break it down. The everyday definition of worship means to show reverence and adoration. So in your life, what would those closest to you say that you revere and adore? 
Would the first thing that they say be, oh man, that person is sold out for Jesus. All he or she does is talk about God. That's, I can never just get them to be quiet. Their whole life is about Jesus. Or would they say, man, that person really reveres and adores stuff. I'm just going to start naming random things. I'm not calling anyone out. I mean, would, would people say you just adore books? I don't know if that's your thing. Like, I just love reading books. Or, or would it be like, I don't know, your gym equipment or your job? Would people say that person just really adores and reveres their relationship, their spouse? Would they say, man, all that person cares about is shoes? Um, I mean, what would they say? Is it your kids, safety, food? What is it? And although these things might not be bad in and of themselves, they are, they are not worthy of being worshipped. And so what does this idea have to do with our passage in Judges? I'm I'm glad one of you asked. The book of Judges is a book about worship. And where we find the children of Israel in this moment of history is a place where someone is gone and everything is changing, or at least it feels like it. This moment is telling the story after the death of Joshua. And a few things are changing. The, the culture is changing. They've relocated to a different region, so their surrounding is a bit different. Their environment is changing. Their situation is changing. Now they're learning how to live in this new inherited land after the death of their leader. And yet in the midst of all these changes, people remain primarily the same. This moment, though it occurred thousands of years ago, is actually a familiar moment many of us have experienced Maybe moving upon San Marcos, uh, San Marcos, Texas, this region, this area might have been a culture change for you. I know it was for my wife. She's from like the small town, Billy Graham, conservative, North Carolina, 100 people, you know, one stoplight type of area. And coming to San Marcos, Texas, she was like, this is different. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I don't know. I've never seen so much blue hair in my life. And I was like, come on, this is awesome, you know? Uh, students, maybe you're starting school or coming back. You might have experienced a change of environment. Like, man, this is awesome. I, I finally have freedom. I'm away from my mom and dad. I can finally do dumb stuff. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you've experienced a change in your situation. Your job has changed. Your, your management has changed. You went from zero to four kids, a puppy, and a mortgage. And what's interesting to notice is that in the midst of all this change, once the dust has settled, you're still pretty much the same person. In this moment, after so much change for the children of Israel, after the death of their leader, one thing has not changed in these people, their own hearts. And what this book reveals and deals with are people whose hearts have forgotten who they love. And what we see from this moment in history is that love for God fades when we pursue and worship someone or something else. So who or what are they pursuing? So Joshua dismissed the people. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So Joshua is best known as Moses' number two guy. Joshua is the leader that takes over after Moses dies and he leads the children of Israel into the promised land. So Moses was God's appointed leader who helped deliver the children of Israel from the slavery and bondage of Egypt. And Joshua was the successor. He was the guy that carried on the mission and helped lead the children of Israel into the promised land. 
So in this moment, Joshua dismisses the people to go and take possession of the land that God promised Israel when he first made his covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, near almost 500 years earlier. I mean, they're living this, they're experiencing this. And so we look at verse 7, it says that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So these people have experienced something incredible. They are on the front lines of a glorious moment in history. They are inheriting a promise that was spoken by their father, Abraham, hundreds of years prior. I mean, have you ever had a moment like this? A moment where you've been holding on to hope for so long, waiting for God to do something in your life, for God to move in a miraculous way, for him to answer that prayer. And then when that happens, you're like, God, I love you. And if you're like me, I'm like, Lord, I'm sorry for being the worst. I'm sorry for doubting you. I'm sorry for not believing that you can be good towards me, that you can move mountains, that your hand can be over my life. And then I usually say something like, I'll serve you all the days of my life. It's my response. And this is what's going on here. The people who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, what were the great works? The great works were the wonderful miracle signs and wonders the children of Israel witnessed under Joshua's leadership, which can be read about in the book of Joshua just a few pages before Judges. And so one of the more famous ones is the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua chapter 3. If you haven't heard this story, I'll give you a brief rundown. There was a river that stood in between the people of Israel and their promised land. This was a, a large river, probably seemed impossible to cross. And so 40 years earlier, God parted the Red Sea for Moses in their escape from bondage and slavery. And so Joshua, in this moment, recalls how God moved on behalf of Moses. So he's filled with faith, and he declares to his people that this river is not going to keep us from crossing into what God has promised us. That there's no barrier, there's no mountain, there's no wall that can keep us from walking in what God has for us. And so what he said was this. He said, the priests are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which was uh, where the tablets, God's law, was being held in. It represented God's presence with the people. And he said, when they carry this Ark and walk towards the river, I want you to follow them. It's an incredible story. And so in Joshua 3, when the priests stepped into the water, guess what happened? The water stopped flowing. And it stood still as if it were being held back against an invisible wall. And so this miraculous moment would affirm that God's presence was with them. And it kind of led into his promise to remove their enemies from the land. I mean, imagine if you were there and and you experienced this and you witnessed this. I would have been the low faith guy, like, all right, we made it this far. Let's turn around. Joshua gives probably the most impractical advice, and he says, follow those guys. And the water's going to, I don't know what it's going to do, but we're going to make it on the other side. And the Lord makes a way where there seems to be no way. I mean, another great work that the children of Israel experienced was the falling of the walls of Jericho that can be read a few chapters later. 
You might be familiar with this story too. God tells Joshua and his people to walk around the walls of this fortified city. And on the seventh day, the walls will fall down. And just like God said, on the seventh day, the walls fell down. And this amazing experience alongside many victories in battle that they won that would secure their place in the promised land, the children of Israel experienced firsthand. So the people that were serving the Lord were the people who had seen the great works. They were there. So there's this structure for Hebrew worship that follows this outline. It goes like this. We worship God for who he is and what he has done. And so these people who serve the Lord were worshiping for who he is. He was faithful and good. He was their provider, their rescuer. And what had he done? He delivered them from the bondage and slavery of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. So let's keep reading. Verse 8 and 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Let's keep reading. Verse 10 through 13. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And the Lord, they provoked the Lord to anger. They were committing spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God. In verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So each human generation lasts from the death of the father to the death of the son. And so in the Bible, generations are not a specific number of years, more or less, but a specific period of time. And so some commentators suggest that it was about 30 years for the, for the elders who outlived Joshua. And so in other words, after this period of time, after a period of time arose, a group of people who did not know the Lord. A group of people who did not have an experiential knowledge of God. They did not experience God or know the Lord the way the previous generation did. And so how did this happen? Well, here's what we can infer from the text. One generation knew the Lord, and along the way, a group of people gradually drifted from God. Now, you might be thinking, how is this possible? Like, you were there. You're God's chosen people. Before you start looking down on the children of Israel, I want you to take your life into consideration. I mean, when was the last time you experienced God's wonderful working power, miracle working power in your life? Like his provision came through for you where you thought there would be no way to pay for school or or pay that bill. Like you experienced his goodness and his breakthrough in a certain area of your life. Now, let me ask you this. How long did that feeling of gratitude, worship, and love towards God last? Now, if you're honest, maybe a week, maybe a few days, 
if you're like me, maybe a few hours. It's not long before I'm like, all right, I found another thing to be ungrateful for. I found another thing to be low in faith and doubt God. And so where does this come from and why is this our experience? The Bible says that this is an issue of the heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Now, what, you, what does Jesus is saying have to do with one generation knowing the Lord and another walking in unfaithfulness towards God? Well, remember what we said earlier. Judges is dealing with a group of people whose hearts forgotten who they love. And what this ultimately boils down to is sin. And so that being said, I want to make this case. I want to make the case that sin is not simply misbehavior, but a worship disorder. Sin is not just doing the wrong things or doing the bad stuff. It's deeper than that. Sin is worshiping the wrong thing. Sin is pursuing and bowing down to something or someone else that isn't the Lord. Sin is a practice of pursuing, worshiping, adoring, revering things or people in your life that you think will ultimately satisfy, complete, or fulfill you. Sin is replacing God in your heart with something else. And the misbehavior always comes after the worship problem starts. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the condition of our hearts. Our hearts, because of sin, drift away from God. And instead of worshiping God, loving God, living for God, our hearts live for other things and love lesser things. And here's what I noticed about the heart, at least mine in particular. It's that our hearts don't just pursue and worship random things. Rather, our hearts pursue very specific things. Things we crave, things we believe will give us the essential things in life, like happiness, peace, joy, safety, a feeling of purpose and worth. And so the children of Israel are not pursuing just random idols. They are pursuing the idols that they believe will grant them the essential things in life, the things that they thought was the key to life and peace. So who were the children of Israel worshiping? Let's look at verse 12 through 13 again. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Who were their fathers? The generation that served the Lord and who had seen the the great works the Lord had done for them. What did they do? They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them the gods of the culture, the gods of the world, the gods of their environment. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baal and Ashtaroth. They abandoned the Lord 
to worship the gods of the Canaanite culture. So who were these gods? Baal. Baal was the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. He was recognized as sustaining the fertility of crops, animals, and people. And Ashtaroth, she was the spouse of Baal, the goddess of fertility, love, and war. So these were physical idols that they were physically bowing down to and sacrificing to. And, and you might say to yourself, well, we don't have idols like that anymore. We live in a, a different time, a, a different culture, a, a different environment. And, and yes, although that is true, as we mentioned earlier, although the culture may change, although the environment may change, although the situation may change, people remain primarily the same. And the heart, unless it is gripped by the love of God, remains primarily the same. So I love this quote by Martin Luther. He said this, there is a reason you shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment because the reason you would murder or steal or break the Sabbath takes God name in vain or covet is because you have violated the first commandment. When other gods, these idols, occupy your life, these things that you prop up in your life as most important to you, it could be your career, your grades, your your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, your kids. When these things hold more weight and more value in your life than the one true God, this will lead to all sorts of ethical and spiritual dilemmas. Sin is not simply misbehavior, but a worship disorder. The worship disorder starts first, and then the misbehavior follows. And unless you find life in Christ, you will look for life and peace in all the wrong things. So in this ancient agricultural society where we find the children of Israel, what was the key to life and peace? I'll tell you. The key to life and peace was crops, livestock, and children. You can't live without the harvest or livestock, and children were not only your labor, but they were your legacy. So if you wanted a fruitful harvest, who would you pursue? Baal, the false god, the bringer of rain. If you wanted children, a healthy labor, fertility, who would you sacrifice to? Astaroth, the false god of love and fertility. Their hearts were not just pursuing random things. They were pursuing specific things, specific things that they thought would give them the essential things in life that they craved, that they wanted, that they needed. And what you'll notice in people is that whatever they hold most dear in their hearts, that is what they will pursue and that is what they'll worship. In this case, the children of Israel were worshiping the gods that the culture told them would give them the essential things that they longed for, crops, children, and livestock. And my question for you is, what are you pursuing that you believe will give you the essential things in life? Is the world telling you via social media or whatever influences you that you need the right job, more money, a certain business-minded lifestyle to be happy? That you need to have the right look, the right clothes, the right figure so that you can be loved and worthy. And the danger of these idols in our life is that like the children of Israel, 
we will sacrifice whatever it takes to attain what our hearts most eagerly desire. We will sacrifice our money. We will sacrifice our time. We will sacrifice and compromise our relationship with God if that's what it takes to attain what our hearts most eagerly desire. And we all sacrifice for our idols. I mean, do you idolize your career? Do you find yourself just striving to climb up this corporate ladder, thinking to yourself that the right career moves will make life better because a better job means better money and and maybe more money is the key to life and happiness for you. So what do you sacrifice? You might sacrifice integrity and honesty and a relationship with God at the altar for a chance to climb up this corporate ladder. Is it your grades or status on campus? Thinking to yourself that good grades will lead to a, a good future and if certain people will think much of me, I can finally feel loved and worthy. So what do you do? You might might sacrifice money at the altar in exchange for worthless things like clothes, accessories, or whatever it is that you're into for a fleeting moment of being liked, noticed, or even feeling loved. And listen, you do not need the right look, the right image, the right life to be loved. God loves you and your security is firmly rooted in who God is for you, what he's done, how much he loves you, and not worthless things that are going to rot away. Being a successful student isn't a bad thing, but it's not worthy of being worshipped. Having the stuff, whatever that is for you, you can fill in the blank, The right look isn't a bad thing, but it's not worthy of being worshipped. Are you pursuing a person? I have to be in a relationship. I I need this so I can feel loved and happy and not lonely. So what do you sacrifice? You might sacrifice godly standards and godly wisdom from others at the altar in exchange for a relationship that will compromise your faith and only bring destruction. A relationship isn't a bad thing, but it's not worthy of being worshipped. And all these idols, they make this claim that you have to have me or your life will be miserable. All of these idols make this false claim that you need me in order to experience peace and happiness. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Idols bring death. And the worship of other idols will crush you, destroy you, and bring disappointment. And it'll it'll never be enough. Because those things were not designed to fill this gaping hole in our heart that only the Lord can fill. And if you don't believe me, spend some time in the Old Testament. We see this repetition of, oh, maybe if we live this way or pursue this thing, things will be different. Same pattern of destruction. And the Lord's faithfulness and grace in the midst of us drifting away from him. The worship of the one true God brings peace and joy, life, worth, and value. So students, your your college experience, your time on campus is not just a period in your life where you get to discover yourself and be removed from your life back home and get a degree and create a few memorable moments while you're at it. No, it is much more than that. Your college experience is a worship experience. And your free time, your spending habits, your relationships will reveal what your heart believes is most important to you. Is it going to be a life-giving, vibrant relationship with the Lord? 
Or is your heart going to pursue and sacrifice for something or someone else? What the children of Israel pursued for life, the worship of these gods, brought upon them death. And what I was pursuing and propping up in my heart, I mean, my my college experience was come to Texas State because it was a party school. And in the midst of being surrounded around all this activity, I will finally discover who I am. I'm like, man, that's that's 18-year-old theology right there. And I, I thought I had it figured out, okay? If that's you, it doesn't work, okay? Uh, and so, I mean, in, in my dorm room with, like, this huge heart for loving people, I remember praying a specific prayer under my Bob Marley poster to give you more context, <laughs> saying, Lord, I know you want to use me to change the world. So uh, I'll do whatever it takes, you know? I'll, I'll, I'll start, you know, the, the nonprofit or, or rally people for a, a greater cause, with, with nothing spiritual connected to it. There, there was no thought of God or Jesus. I didn't know who he was. But in my prayer, I remember saying, God, use me to change the campus and to change the world. Mind you, not, not in any sort of Christian way. I didn't know how that works. And so in my pursuit of sin, in pursuing the normal college experience, trying to find worth and value in all the wrong things, the Lord revealed himself to me through a person who for three straight hours in my dorm room shared with me how much God loves me. And I was blown away, and so he invited me to a Bible study that kind of turned into connecting to this church and this ministry, and and here I am now. And what I can look back on is that my heart was eagerly craving, desiring a sense of security, a sense of worth, a sense of identity. I was clueless, didn't know who I was. Eagerly thinking to myself that if I could experience a sense of momentary happiness and fleeting joy, in drinking all the wrong things and doing all the wrong stuff, that maybe I'll be happy. Only to find out that I would be left more miserable than before. Because what my heart most eagerly desired and craved, it was restless until I, I found rest in God, as an ancient theologian says. And it was in my pursuit of a thousand different things in a thousand different places where I, was, I could find everything that I was looking for in the person of Christ, and it changed everything. And so your college experience isn't just a moment in your life where you can discover yourself or whatever that means. Change your major a thousand times until you find out what makes you happy. Date and then have terrible relationships and do all the wrong stuff and make all the wrong choices in an effort to say, okay, uh, this is helping me figure out who I am. No, it's only adding to your destruction. And what the Lord wants to say to you and reveal to you is that all these things, this this purpose, life, the essential things that your heart craves can be found in Christ. Sin is not simply a misbehavior, but a worship disorder. They abandon the Lord and serve the Baal and the Ashtaroth. So let's recap how we got here. There was a a younger generation and an older generation. The older generation experienced the faithfulness of God and the wonderful miracles performed by God on their behalf. And so although this portion of scripture might seem like an indictment on the younger generation, it's actually also an indictment on the older generation because the older generation did not pass on an experiential knowledge of God to the younger generation. And this younger generation drifted away from the Lord and worshiped false gods of the region because one of the reasons why is that the older generation failed to pass on 
the great beauty and brilliance and love of God, his grace and mercy and his faithfulness, how real and how amazing he is to the next generation. So with that in mind, I want to zone in and speak to two groups of people today as we close. I want to speak to the older generation in the room, and I want to speak to the younger generation. Now, the older generation, uh, you don't have to necessarily be, uh, you know, Glenn Shutnik old. You can just be slightly older than the next person. Glenn's not here, so that joke failed. Uh, Scott Morse, you're my number two guy. Uh, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be Scott old, but you might be slightly older than the, than the person or, or generation below you. I mean, you, singles, slightly older than the college students, married, married with children, older fathers and mothers in the faith. I want to speak to you, and I want to speak to the younger generation. Students in all walks of life in our church, college students, kids' church, I want to speak to you from this text. So the older generation, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you are what is known as being rooted in the faith. So what part do you play? Psalm 145 verse 4 says that one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So you've been rooted in the faith and exist to invest and deposit an experiential knowledge of God into the next generation. You do not exist to blame and talk about how bad the young guns are. You exist to share with them how real and glorious and amazing Jesus is and that he's worth following for the rest of your life. And so too many times people get worked up. They say stuff like, is this a young person church? Is this a college church? Is this an old person church? If you need help wondering who we are, I'll help clarify this for you. We are a church for people. Young, old, broken, hopeless, hurting, healed, righteous, wherever you find yourself, this church is for you. An older generation, you have been placed here to show the younger generation who God is and what he has done. How wonderful, how amazing and beautiful he's been in your life. And so you might be thinking to yourself, I don't have all the, the energy that these young students have. I, I don't like to, I don't know how to text like they do and I, I don't know how to connect with them. Listen, that doesn't matter. Your feet has walked into places has stepped into experiences that this younger generation has yet to see, and you have been assigned with a God-given responsibility and placed here to invest into the next generation. And so here's my plug for Adopt a Bobcat. Here we go, you ready? Adopt a Bobcat, like we mentioned earlier, is a program that we rolled out to help create strong relationships between students and community members. And it's pretty simple. It's opening up your life, sharing a meal, ice cream, coffee, going fishing, whatever it is that that you're into and inviting students into that space and sharing your life with them. And so check this out. The younger generation, they want this. They crave this. I'm, I'm a part of that. They want to hear stories of God. They want to hear your experiences. They want to learn from you. And I'm a part of this young generation. And I'll tell you this, we want mothers and fathers in the faith. We want models who are are going to show us who God is and how to follow him. We want to lean in and learn from your experiences. So older generation, single, married, married with kids, wherever you find yourself, the younger generation needs you. 
And I love that we're being intentional about creating a space for you to invest in the next generation. So, so that's my plug for Adopt a Bobcat. And for some of you, this is the Lord answering a prayer regarding what are you supposed to do? How can you make an impact? How can you change the world? It starts by loving your neighbor and investing into the next generation. And all of us, every single person in this room, you have something to give. The younger generation, I want to speak to you. I'm here because older believers have invested in my life, have taught me things that I've never heard of, have showed me things that I could not have found on my own, and shared with me who God is and and what he has done in their lives. Individuals and families have invited me into their lives, and, and being the Mexican self I am, I have shamelessly invited myself over for dinner more often than not. Do whatever it takes. So students, every single one of you, do not leave this place without signing up for Adopt a Bobcat. Don't let any circumstance influence your life that you would be known as that generation that arose and did not know the Lord. When God has placed you in a home with wonderful stories of miracle signs and faithfulness, of God's wonder that would move your heart to worship and deeper faith and relationship with him, if you would just be as obedient to leaning in, stepping up, and signing up for Adopt a Bobcat. Students, sign up, surround yourself around the mothers and fathers of faith in this house. I want you to bug them. I want you to offer to mow their lawn free of charge. Yeah, I want you to serve them. There we go, amen. I want you to babysit their kids free of charge. I want you to ask them questions about the faith and hear their stories of God's faithfulness. Students, I also want you to realize this. So get ready to take in what I'm about to say. You are the older generation for the even younger generation here, the kids in Kids Church. And you, students, have a vital role to play in the spiritual development, in the lives of our kids here in Kids Church. You have a part to play. You have a part to pass on an experiential knowledge of Jesus to these kids and show them that he's not just a character from an ancient book, that he's real. And while all the other kids might be saying that, that Jesus isn't real, that, that he's for old people and that, that he's, you know, absent and distant, you have a chance to step into their lives and model Jesus to them and show them that he is wonderful, that he is amazing, that he loves you. And you have a part to play to invest in the even younger generation. So you ready for this? Here's my plug for Kids Church. Do not leave this place without signing up to serving Kids Church. Every single student in this place, I want you to go to the back after we're done, find a Kids Church worker, fill out an application, and pour your heart, pour your life into the next generation the way that you wish someone did for you when you were their age. Serve them, love on them, show them that Jesus is real and that he's worth following with everything you have. Verse seven, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So the people that served the Lord, that lived for the Lord, were the people that had seen the Lord 
who had an experience with God firsthand for themselves. It wasn't a secondhand experience. It wasn't the experience of their mothers or fathers. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, them being dragged to church. They experienced God for themselves, and they were able to internalize faith for themselves. And those people loved God and worshiped him. And so these people, the children of Israel, participated and, and witnessed a great work, a laundry list of miracles that would eventually give way to a greater work. And what is this greater work, you may ask? Look no further than the cross of Christ, where every idol was crushed. Every false god rendered useless and worthless. The cross of Christ, where his blood was not only shed to cleanse us of our sins, but heal our sinful, forgetful hearts. And he does this through a wonderful exchange where we give him our broken hearts in exchange for his. And this is where we find the joy, the peace, the security, the safety, the love, all the essential things that we desperately long for is found in Christ and Christ alone. So don't settle, students, for a normal college experience when Jesus has secured something way better for you. Live for Jesus. Live with Jesus. Experience his wonderful mirror working power every single day as you step on campus, as you live in community, as you leverage your life to make much of him and be obedient to him. Older generation, pass on what you have. You might be thinking, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to pass You do. The Lord has done something in your life. That's one thing that he did for you personally that you can share on, that you can share that experience with. You have something to give. You have something to share. You have a part to play that is going to contribute to the younger generation's worship towards God. So pour your lives out into the next generation. Younger generation, do not only lean into the older generation, but pour out what the Lord has done for you into the life of the kids in our kids' church. Let's, let's close in prayer as we transition into communion.